Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the LawCast. This time, we're going back to cover maybe Dusty Rhodes' finest moment, both in front of and behind the camera. It's Starcade 85, The Gathering. Kyush, for me, there were no hard times watching this show. I thought this was great. This show kicks ass. Uh, this show is pretty much everything that you want from a Starcade, both in terms of it seeming big, because the production's a fucking killer on this show, a huge main event. They're in two different arenas. Like th- this is this is bigger than pretty much most WrestleManias around this era. Like this kicks total ass. Yeah, the technical feat of doing both um, Greensboro and Atlanta in the same night and how well they pull it off is amazing to me because again, everybody always thinks of the WWF as having the better production value, probably mostly rightfully so. But six months after this, the WWF is going to do WrestleMania two. And it was pretty much a disaster. Like they try to do this multiple locations gimmick and it's infinitely inferior to how uh, Crockett pulls it off here. Oh, yeah. Crockett blows them utterly out of the water. Like, this is seamless. If they didn't tell you that it was from two different arenas, you probably genuinely would not have known. That's fucking incredible. Yeah, and the they very smartly go back and forth each match. One match is in Greensboro, the next one's in Atlanta, so they don't burn the they don't make the crowd sit around for two hours watching a screen like they did when the WWF did WrestleMania from New York and LA and Chicago a couple months after this, that much better. And they didn't, the WWF for WrestleMania two had different commentary teams in each city, which meant they had to have like celebrities on commentary here. They just have Shivani and Caudill do commentary for both locations, which I'm kind of shocked they could do that technologically, but it works out. The commentary is not great, but I don't know if it's technical issues or Shivani just not being very experienced at this point. It could be both because Shivani has replaced Gordon Soley here, which as much as you might hate Michael Cole in your heart of hearts for replacing Jr., that ain't a fucking patch on how fans felt about this young prick Tony Shivani with his crappy mustache replacing the god, the goat Gordon Soley. It just felt like this followed him around for his entire career. I mean, it literally did. Like, he gets booed on this show when he's doing the live run-up at the beginning. It just doesn't feel like a time where announcers got booed. Like, not babyface announcers. No, like, he's a representative of the company. And, like, people don't boo the company back in these days. Man, he's getting booed into the dirt. So a lot of... Big and important things happening here. The Hard Times promo, the formation of the Four Horsemen. Uh, Ric Flair is still the NWA World Heavyweight Champion. For 793 days, he has reigned at this point. Woo! That's a hell of a run. Yeah, he is. yeah, (laughs) been champion for a very long time at this point. 85 has been a huge year for Crockett. Um... It's the year they took over the 6.05 Saturday night time slot from the WWF. They bought it from Vince, who needed money to finance WrestleMania and his national expansion. And the WWF wasn't drawing ratings in that time slot anyway, so they were ready to dump it. 
which is just incredible. I mean, the whole thing really did not didn't work out for anybody. Didn't work out for Vince or Turner. Ends up nearly putting Vince out of business because it's one of the motivations for Turner to be the angel investor who buys WCW and keeps it in business and keeps subsidizing it even as it loses money every year until he finally gets them to go head to head with Vince. Like it's kind of amazing the chain reaction it sets off. Now there ha- there is this like line of thinking that people have that like why didn't Vince just put on a product that those people wanted to see? And the answer to that is really just that this was just one territory. And like Vince was doing this in every territory at the same time. Like Vince was trying to take over literally everything all at once. So he was just basically putting on a highlight package of the only product he actually paid attention to, which was his own. The problem with that is that in most territories, that his stuff looked way better, had much bigger stars, and was cooler than what the actual territory had been putting on themselves. This was the only exception. So it's not like he could have just dropped in and been like, all right, let me just outbook what they were already doing. That was never going to happen. <laughs> Yeah, and it's just not plausible that they're going to put on a specialized show for regional markets. Like, just not going to happen. They had no. to. They they were able to take their product national, worked almost everywhere, just didn't work in this one particular circumstance. But Crockett takes over the iconic 6:05 Saturday night time slot, which you know will continue until. I don't know, the year 2000 when they canceled WCW Saturday night. God, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I, 30 years, 6.05 Saturday night was when wrestling was on. Now, you were basically a kid, and when and Saturday night was pretty much like a joke afterthought at that time. So is that how you felt about it? I mean, I watched Saturday night just because I was so obsessed with wrestling that, like, I was going to watch it anytime it was on. But no, it didn't have that special, like, place in my heart. Because by the time I started watching, like, Monday night was when the wrestling was on. Because that was when Raw and Nitro were on. But for fans of a certain age and from a certain region, like, 6.05 is wrestling time. And, like, Absolutely. when AEW did that random, um, they had that Saturday night episode of Dynamite. Um because the NBA playoffs preempted their show on Wednesday. I half-jokingly was like, they really should be starting it at 6.05. Um, they absolutely fucking should have. Just... <laughs> and they're leaning into that, too. I love these promos they put on Twitter where they have, like, Shivani in front of the old-school backdrop, and, like, they just do a straight-up 1980s promo. Like... It's sort of a wink and a nod. Like, everybody understands that they've just basically done WCW yes. over to compete with WWE. They don't have to come right out and say it, but if I would bet good solid money that Tony Khan was a gigantic WCW fan when he was a kid and that all of them are just big fanboys. But it is cute to me that they're just like, oh, hey, yeah, it's all the exact same shit. Um, this was the first year of the Great American Bash. Um they ran it at the Charlotte Memorial Coliseum um, in July with a reported 27,000 people in attendance. Nice. Strong crowd in the stadium. Uh, main event, Dusty beat Tully Blanchard in a steel cage match to win the NWA World Television title. And in the sub-main event, Ric Flair retained the NWA title against Nikita Koloff. 
Flair's still a baby face into the summer. We'll get to his heel turn in a second. Yes. Um, this Flair heel turn is an interesting one. Because while I always think of Ric Flair as a heel, they really were fighting the crowd trying to get them to boo Flair after about 1980. Like, he was pretty well cemented as a babyface in the Carolinas at this point. Oh, yeah. It, I, there's probably, like, a frame, like a way of thinking that, like, Ric Flair was, like, a failed babyface, and that's why they had to turn him. And that absolutely is not true. This babyface run is hugely successful. It's drawn big, big crowds everywhere. Like, there, and it's not like people were, like, getting bored of him or clamoring for the turn. I think they just saw an opportunity where it was like, look, if we turn him now, we'll get, like, the maximum possible heat out of yeah. this. So well, let's go for it. He wanted to play a heel, and Dusty wants to be the top face, so it works out for both of them. I mean, it honestly does. Like, it's probably the most iconic feud of the 80s is Flair versus Dusty, and it, it all centers around this. Without all of this, though, like, so many legacies are different if the Four Horsemen don't form, which it would have been real easy not to take that risk with Flair. Like, it's entirely possible that Flair cools off. You don't spend the entire rest of the 80s searching for that baby face to replace Dusty. Like, what does the future look like? Well, I mean, the big what if here is what if Magnum TA doesn't have his car accident? And that's what I really think it is. I think they see, all right, Magnum's the future. Yes. We got to set up heels for Magnum. Yeah. They're getting to, they're booking year to year at this point. They know next year is going to be Magnum and Flair. It's going to be Magnum's time to win the belt. They could have drawn 80,000 fans for Magnum Flair. I believe that with my entire heart. Yeah. They could have sold out the fucking Louisiana Superdome. Like it, it's not the the heat that would have been on that match. Because Magnum's really only been on the scene for like a year. And he's been crocking yeah. on this whole he's show. Pretty brand new, but yeah, he is hot. And him and Tully Blanchard have an unbelievable match on this show like, absolutely the most legendary matches in southern wrestling and the heat on flair coming out of the four horsemen is like maybe the biggest i've ever seen so the big turn is september 25th in the omni flair defends the title against nikita koloff in a steel cage match he wins and then ivan koloff jumps in the cage and attacks him Dusty comes out to make the save. They run the Russians off. But then the Andersons, Arn and Ole, hit the ring. They lock the cage, and they turn on Dusty. They tune him up. They kayfabe break Dusty's ankle, and it's just pandemonium. Um, like, they do, they have, you know, all the baby faces are running out trying to scale the cage get in through the door. They can't do it. Like Mark fans are jumping the railing and trying to climb the cage and get in there. Like, I think it took 40 minutes for them to like clear the people out enough that they could get out of this cage safely. This is like, this is a genuine riot. First it was a kayfabe riot and it turned into a real riot. Like I've never seen anything like this. Like this is, it's one of the great angles ever filmed. Because because Dusty and Flair have had such a tumultuous relationship as rivals 
that this is one of those big like, oh, they're going to stand together and they're going to fight together. And like, this is what the fans wanted. This is what the fans have wanted for a very long time. So when they were finally going to get it and then for Flair to turn on Dusty. I mean, who is literally their self insert and to align himself with the Andersons, who are the just nastiest, most hated heels out there. And then for them to viciously destroy Dusty. And, like, this is visceral. Like, this isn't like, oh, they hit him with their boot. Oh, no. (laughs) Like, they they appear to break his goddamn arm. (sighs) Just a perfect angle. And just, like, the sight of Arn Anderson standing on the top rope, literally punching real fans in the face (laughs) and knocking them off the cage so they can't get in. God, back when wrestling was real. Like, these are live rounds, ladies and gentlemen. Like, they have to fight off the fans because if Marks get in the ring, they're going to stampede him. <laughs> these guys, lucky nobody had a gun. I'm sure some of them had blades. And, like, they, why, there had to have been why Gary, This is why Gary Hart carried around a razor blade. This is why Jim Cornette loved, it, Cornette loved his tennis racket because he could use it as an actual weapon if he needed to, and he had to on many occasions. He um, used to use it to, like, knock the projectiles back at fans. Yeah. yeah, people would throw their fucking sodas at him, and he'd smack it back in their face. Like, this... It's amazing that there weren't more incidents. And I think, to some extent, like, as much as, like, fans were trying to get in and beat up Ric Flair, like there's thinking it's real and then there's thinking it's real, right? Like you want to get in there and protect your favorite wrestler. You don't actually want to kill Ric Flair. No. To some extent, people understood. I've heard about what, I mean, I've heard of stab, I mean, I've heard about stabbings. Sure. Um, I mean, that was just a Saturday night back in the South, back in the day. Nobody got stabbed. You didn't do a good job. There wasn't any heat. Um, I heard, there's a gun pulled in Mid-South once, and it was like yes. when JYD was blinded. Yes, that's true. Which, tough spot for JYD to be in as he sees somebody's pulled a gun on Michael Hayes, and he can't save him. He can't sell it. <laughs> he can't expose the, yeah, he can't expose the business. Can <laughs> he can't say sell that the fact that man has actually pulled a gun. Bill Watts would fire him. Yeah, Bill Watts would, like, sprint out there and shoot him himself <laughs> if he exposed the business. Sometimes um, you gotta take a bullet and go to your death, keeping kayfabe. <laughs> a couple weeks later, Dusty comes back. He proceeds to cut the Hard Times promo. I think everybody regards this as one of the greatest of all time. And what is what is it about this that makes this so memorable? Part of it was, and like Dusty got a lot of letters from fans at the time that were like. No wrestler had ever really tried to appeal to my real life situation. This is the mid 80s, ladies and gentlemen. Life sucks. These are hard times in a lot of the country. Overall, like we're coming out of that early 80s recession. But in the Carolinas, the textile industry got absolutely decimated. Um, In Texas, Atlanta, Oklahoma, the oil industry had gone bust, like they were hurting. Auto industry was struggling. Um, like literally, for this is their fan base. Like the working class has always been wrestling's number one fan base, yeah. especially in the South. God knows. So like Dusty actually appealing to those people was just such a masterstroke. But also he just taps into something here. Like 
most Dusty promos can be a lot like rock promos in that there are a lot of enthusiasm and not a lot of things to say. But Dusty just gets himself, like, around an idea here that, like, you fucking elitist prick motherfucker, you don't understand what it's like to go through hard times. This is a real shift, for I feel like, for the Dusty character that had previously been much more flamboyant, ladies' man, you know, very, like, flashy. This is much more him embracing, like, that he's the son of the plumber. And this is, I feel like, what he's identified as subsequently. But, like, the old Dusty Rhodes from his previous peak was kind of a Rick, was kind of a fat version of Ric Flair, I would say. He was trying to be Muhammad Ali, was what he was trying to be. It's yeah. like the, the American dream idea. Like, he was, yeah... Like, when he wrestled as a heel in territories, like, he would be, like, a flamboyant, gorgeous George type. Like, it it was, it's weird to see him become, like, this hero of the blue collar, but it all boils down to this. Like, Dusty's not unaware of what's going on. Dusty knows what the fans want to hear. And he gives them the hero that they're looking for. And, like, this one promo cements him in the minds of those fans forever. Like, he... He could have just ridden this one promo for the rest of his career. And my favorite part, it's three minutes long. Three minutes. Not Unbelievably 15. condensed. Yeah, not 10, three minutes. Because it's a one-hour show. They've got 42 minutes of TV time. Might have and been two hours. It was two hours when it wasn't baseball season. But in any case, they weren't doing 15-minute promo segments back then. You got You got out there, you made your point. At one point, I had the entire promo memorized, and I would just cut it. Like yeah. I would just be like, "Be at school," and I just bust out hard times, because <laughs> it's not. It doesn't take long. It's not a long thing, yeah. and it was just in the middle of like a normal TV show, man. Like, can you just imagine watching that live, and just being like, "Wow." <laughs> I mean, the thing is that this was an especially great one, but like, Flair and Dusty were hitting home runs every week at this point. I mean, oh yeah. It's you can't express how much the matches are better today, but man, are the promos worse? Oh my God, yeah. Like the promos there are, are people, infinitely worse. There are jobbers on this show who could cut better promos than main eventers in every wrestling company now. It's 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 just not something that's valued or important or whatever. I don't know what it is, but and you just don't get the practice you used to, like. Anybody could go to a new territory and cut 40 promos and move on to the next one. And if they suck, they suck. And they can just move on and deal with it. But if you're in WWE, you cut one bad promo. They don't let you cut anymore. Um, So as we mentioned earlier, this is the first time they split the show between two locations. They do half the matches in Greensboro, half the matches in Atlanta. Um, They'll do this again the next year in 86. And then they abandon the concept with disastrous results. But I'm a big fan of this idea. I am very surprised that we haven't seen the WWF do this with WrestleMania. We saw this year WrestleMania was a two-night event because they didn't think they could do a five- or six-hour show in an empty arena, and they were right that they couldn't pull that off. But I would not be surprised at all if WrestleMania continued to be a two-night event and just for money purposes, I think it makes sense to draw two gates. 
Oh, God, yeah. And, like, they, they always split their time between, like, New York and Florida, so why not just do one in New York and one in Florida? They have the technology to make it absolutely seamless. Like, no problem. Like, the announcers could easily call what's on the other show. The fans could easily see and enjoy what's on the other show while they're in the other arena. It, like, it, it's a no-brainer. They should absolutely do that. Yeah, and they pulled it, they pulled it off remarkably well here, like... Yeah, this shouldn't work this smoothly. They don't Shocked have the there's technology. no technical issues here, but yeah, they somehow put this together perfectly. Yeah, this is beautiful. And and like the symbolism of doing the Omni and Greensboro Coliseum. Like the two hearts of Southern wrestling, you know what I mean? Like one from Atlanta, one from North Carolina, like the two buildings that have always represented the big show in the South. And, like, this is really when they start to move in and, like, represent the South as a whole, rather than just being Jim Crockett promotions. This is why it's such a betrayal in 87 when they run the show in Chicago. Biggest mistake they ever made. And, like, expanding to, like, we could get into that a whole other time, because the expansion, trying to expand nationally kills them. But, like, that specifically was a slap in the face. Yeah, no, the national expansion turns out to be a huge mistake. They run themselves into the ground, flying all over the country on a private jet, running shows in cities they have no business being in and not drawing at all. But that happens later. Here, the good times are rolling, and it doesn't feel like they're ever going to stop. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Like, they think they have their future set on the horizon. They got the next big thing coming up. They got, like, the best possible marquee attraction feud in the whole wrestling world going on. Like... You're on top of the world. It can't get better than this. So they have to make a decision on the finish of this main event. They end up... This is maybe the most infamous Dusty finish. Dusty initially wins the belt, but the week after this, they'll give it back to Flair, ruling that it should have been a disqualification. Um, It works out amazingly well here. They draw... Just enormous amounts of money by continuing the chase. So I don't think there's any issue with doing it here. I think the issue becomes that they will proceed to redo this about a million times in the years after this. Let's say the dusty finish is uh, an infamous term because what it becomes is shorthand for, well, we can't figure out what to do. So let's just lie. Let's just yeah. tell the fans one thing and then just do whatever we want the next week. This became like WCW nitro booking one Oh one. Like, literally, like, whatever happened on the pay-per-view doesn't fucking matter. Nobody cares. The next day, we're just going to put it back on Hogan, so don't worry about it. Yeah, this is the kind of thing that works great when you do it, like, once every couple of years, which this is not – Dusty didn't invent this. Like Yes. Like, so, I mean, honestly, that cage angle, that wasn't – like, that's an angle that had been done in other territories, too. But, you know, great bookers – borrow from other bookers and this is what dusty's doing here this is a finish that's been around in a long time in wrestling and been used sparingly the problem is with the expansion of national tv people start seeing this all the time you can do this once and then you can't do it again for i don't know five seven years i'd say before you can go there again unfortunately it becomes associated with dusty because dusty develops a penchant for it to get out of sticky situations and especially to make himself not look bad (laughs) Which, you know, it is what it is. But it works here because it's this ideal solution. Like, the fans need to see Dusty win the belt. Like, that's important. It has to happen. But Flair needs to be the champion. And everybody knows it. It's the right choice. 
even if it is kind of like, all right, well, if that's the ruling, why did the ref let the match go on another five minutes? Yeah. Um, Dusty will chase Flair into the summer to the Great American Bash, where he'll finally beat him in a cage match to win the belt. And then he'll you know, lose the belt back to Flair after a couple weeks, because that's just how things go back then. And he'll never win it again. Yeah. Yeah. For justifiable criticism that Dusty pushed himself too hard, but you cannot say he hogged the belt. It's actually kind of stunning to think that like 86, 87 is kind of like the end of his real wrestling career. Like he'll go to WWE and do the yeah, spell with the polka joke. dots, but yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Like he only has like a really like nine year run on top and then he's gone. Yeah, I mean he was. I mean he's not a young guy by already by this point he's not a young guy. Oh yeah, like he didn't find the American Dream character until he was like thirty. Like he's he did a number of years in the seventies just like uh, him and him and Dick Mur- him and Dick Murdoch were a great tag team. But the yeah, West he had a Texas lo- Rednecks log run with Murdoch as the Texas Outlaws. Yeah. Uh, so to get into the show. Starcade 85, The Gathering. It's um, Thanksgiving night, 1985. That's November the 28th. Uh, we're at the Greensboro Coliseum in Greensboro, North Carolina, and the Omni in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, both venues are packed, so they sell about 30,000 tickets between the two venues. Uh, show is broadcast on closed circuit all around the South. Couldn't find a number on how it drew, but I have to imagine it was very strong. Oh, God, yeah. When did they actually start doing like real pay-per-views? 87, Starcade okay. 87, which is a there's a long and twisted story to that that we will get to next Thanksgiving. Yeah, we will. Um very 80s opening with like, you know, animated fireworks on the screen and then a shot of a disco ball. Yeah. That's timely. <laughs> then we go to Tony Schiavone and Bob Cottle at ringside there in Atlanta. They throw to Johnny Weaver in Greensboro and they talk back and forth between the locations. I assume this was just their kind of testing of this and also establishing to the audience how this was working, that they were going to be in both Greensboro and Atlanta. This would have blown my goddamn mind yeah. if I was watching it at the time. Like, just casually throwing back and forth between two like li- locations with a live video feed, like this is an accomplishment in like film. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you want to know what's crazy impressive is one of the Nixon Kennedy debates in 1960. One of them was in New York and the other was in L.A. Damn. <laughs> yeah, I, the technology to pull that off in 1960 and have a pretty seamless debate is amazing. Um, I'm still impressed by it here, and it's 1985. Yeah. I mean, the technology has come a long way in the time since then, but not necessarily in this venue. Like, people weren't really trying to do this in other walks of life. This hadn't really been the focus. Um, Then ring announcer Tom Miller welcomes us to Greensboro. They have a marching band perform the Star Spangled Banner. Then we open up with a match for the NWA Mid-Atlantic title as Sam Houston takes on Crusher Khrushchev for the vacant title. Buzz Tyler uh, vacated the title when he left the promotion due to a pay dispute. Uh, hard times for the Mid-Atlantic title. Oh, absolutely. Um, 
I don't even know where this belt is in the pecking order because I think it's I think obviously you got the world title and then I think the U.S. title is the main title. Yeah. Um, after that, so I guess this is belt number three. You got the TV title too. I think I'd rather be the TV champion than the Mid Atlantic champion. But what about the national championship? Uh, is the national championship a Crockett belt? I think that was from a different. I thought that was. That was a Georgia belt, but Georgia doesn't really exist anymore. At the, oh, I think goalie's still running some semblance of the Georgia promotion at this point. The biggest think, thing is... Let's think of the national many, title as a Georgia title. There's way too many belts on these shows. There's too many fucking belts, man. Yeah. yeah. Like how, sometimes many sets, just, how many sets of tag titles do we see on these shows? Just sometimes go and look at the Wikipedia list of National Wrestling Alliance championships. Because I was going to read it off, but it's literally like a th- like 700 belts deep. Like, it's, it's crazy. There's dozens of promotions. There's dozens of territories still at this point in 1985. And they've all got their main singles title. They've pretty much all got like a second or third singles title. Brass knuckles title. A couple tag belts junior title in some places like yeah i mean and they just roll them out on these shows and sometimes i don't even know if they're real or they're made up like i'm sure in some cases they just like brought some new guys in and were like oh let's give them some tag belts and just say they want them somewhere did you know that the nwa national title is still active no <laughs> wait i think i might have known this is trevor murdoch the champion he sure is yeah love trevor murdoch what the fuck why is this belt the one that survived this was a pretty i mean this in the missouri title are the two i think of that were the most prominent after obviously the nwa world title Oh, yes. Okay, so the national title goes away in 86 and comes back in 97. I was about to say, it can't possibly have been defended the whole time. No, the national title was the main title in Georgia. Okay. Um, Got it. The Missouri, and the Missouri title was the main belt. I mean, each promotion has to have its own primary singles championship because they're only getting the world champion a couple times a year. So you got the U.S. title in Crockett, the national title in Georgia, World class had its, you know, Texas heavyweight championship, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, the problem is it, it really does get difficult to see, like, what's the pecking order with these belts? Like, there's a tag team title match on this show where both teams have title belts, and I don't know which one's more prestigious. I don't know what, what which one are we should be gunning for. Yeah. But the other thing about these Starcades is they are kind of a territory all-star show, yeah. so they are bringing in champions from other territories here. Like most of these belts are not around on a week to week basis. That's true. This territory. Um, Barry uh, Crusher Khrushchev is Barry Darso, who is smashed from demolition playing a Russian, but not really as we'll see later. (laughs) Yes. In the most hilarious promo I've ever seen in my entire life. Sam Houston has a cowboy gimmick. He is the half-brother of Jake Roberts, and he will later have a not very successful run in the WWF. Um, Why is the referee dressed in bright yellow here? Steve, thank you so fucking much for bringing that up. (laughs) You're not crazy. And you can see this color, right? I'm aware of what color he's wearing because it is outrageously bold. Ladies and gentlemen, this man is wearing a fucking disco leisure suit to referee these matches. He is dressed in Kill Bill yellow. (laughs) Yes. 
I I can't I couldn't make heads or tails of it. I couldn't watch the wrestlers while he was walking around. And he's like this old old man. Um this is not a terribly interesting match. Um Houston is quick and technically sound. Khrushchev is powerful. Um Houston manages to crotch Khrushchev on the top rope, hits him with a bulldog. He covers and he thinks that he's won. He gets up to celebrate, but it turns out Khrushchev got his foot on the ropes. Khrushchev then hits him with the Russian sickle. Houston gets his foot on the ropes, but the referee doesn't see it. Khrushchev gets a cheap win uh, to become the new champion. I thought I actually I could not remember who Sam Houston was while I was watching this match. I just knew how familiar it sounded. So I was like, man, this Sam Houston guy, was he like big and world class or something? Because I swear to God, like he's got potential and it's interesting. And only at the end did I remember like, oh, he's that Sam Houston. Dr. Jobber. It's Grizzly Smith's other son. And boy, does he not work out in WWE. Probably yeah, because he's like Xbox size. Yeah, I don't know if he was. I, I'm not. They may have just hired him as a favorite, Jake. I'm not sure if he was ever actually supposed to get a push. I mean, he got little pushes here and there before they finally just buried him. Um, so that was in Greensboro. We jump over to the Omni for the next match. Again, this is definitely the best way to do a show that's in multiple locations. Absolutely. Uh, it's a Mexican death match between Abdullah the Butcher and Manny Fernandez. Guys, I-, I want you to imagine what you think a Mexican death match is. With Abdullah the Butcher, you think it's going to be brutal. I guarantee you what you don't think is that it's actually a sombrero on a pole match. <laughs> because yeah. that's what this is. Not kidding. It's like straight out of the Vince Russo playbook. They literally take... Manny Fernandez's sombrero and explaining that that's a big part of his cultural heritage. Put it on a pole. Um, this was one of the matches where I, I don't know if they were having technical difficulties, but there was just long stretches here where the announcers didn't say anything. It was just silence from the announcers. And I can't tell if it's a technical issue or if it's just kind of like, they don't have a lot of chemistry and kind of now this is where Gordon Soley would fill the silence. Yeah. Gordon Soley, as we saw at past Starcades, could fill a silence like no one else. Whereas Tony Schiavone doesn't have an insightful thing to say from the beginning of this show to the end of it. Yeah. Gordon Soley would be telling us that Manny Fernandez got a business degree from the university of Miami or whatever. <laughs> That's a business sombrero that was issued to him when he completed his training for his doctorate in the medical sciences. Um, it's an ugly brawl. What else would it be with Abdullah the Butcher? Um, uh, Manny uses his cowboy boot as a weapon. Abdullah climbs for the hat, but Fernandez cuts him off, and Abby just kind of falls off the top rope. Fernandez climbs. Abdullah takes him out with the boot. Uh, Fernandez takes off his belt. He whips Abby with it. Uh, there's a big suplex on the Butcher, which is very impressive because Abdullah the Butcher is already incredibly fat by this point. Yeah, and he's not taking a lot of bumps at this point either. So just think about the fact that we're still seeing him wrestle 25 years from uh, here. What do, you, what do you make of Abdullah the Butcher? Abdullah the Butcher did one very, 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 very smart thing, which is 
he realized that he did not have the staying power to stay in any one territory for more than a month. So he just continually moved from territory to territory. They'd build him up on the posters and with promos. He'd have one crappy match, and then he'd move on. So Nope's territory every time to get sick of him. Um, Fernandez climbs the pole. Abdullah pulls out his spike and stabs him in the dick. Yeah, he does. You know a feud is intense when dudes are getting stabbed in the dick. If anything, I think every cage match should include a, a knife to the dick. Because frankly, that's how you know it's serious. <laughs> Fernandez recovers and goes for a splash from the top rope, but he misses. Abby misses a charge in the corner. That allows Fernandez to climb and pull down the hat to win. This was an okay match, but the stipulation was just laughable. And, like, I get that you can't have... Like, an actual Mexican death match is just the same as a Texas death match. Like, you, yeah. it's, bas- it's either a last man standing match or submission only, and you just beat the guy to a pulp to win. Like, it's... Yeah. I quit you don't match. really have time to do that here. No, and Abby's not going to lose a match like that. And they can't not put over Manny. So this is a fine way of getting around that. And Manny looked good. Like, I'm surprised they didn't do more with Fernandez, to be honest. Yeah, he's been a bit of a standout from these shows. Absolutely. There's nothing else like him on the shows. Like, he's just a high-intensity brawler guy. You love to see it. Uh, we go back to Greensboro, where Johnny Weaver interviews Crusher Khrushchev, who doesn't even bother <laughs> with a Russian accent. Doesn't what even. Are, what are we doing here? Like, it, it's not even to say that he doesn't try Barry Darcel was actual voice. Sounds a lot like this, guys. I'm an all-American boy, and I I like apple pie and French fries, and I think that I it's really great that I won the title, and also I'm a Russian warrior. Okay. Is it supposed to get him heat that he's an American turncoat? No, he says he's Russian. Oh God. He just they don't even bother. Nikita Koloff learned Russian for his role as a Russian. Yeah, Nikita Koloff would literally keep character in the locker room. Like, there were people who knew Ivan Koloff his whole life and did not know that he was not actually Russian. Next up, we've got a Texas bull rope match between Ron Bass and Black Bart. Um, Bass... Steve, let's go with the board. What's um, the difference between these guys? There is no fucking it's difference the between person. these. Same person. They're just two rejected blackjacks, and they're both in the same match. And, again, have we ever covered a good Texas bull rope match? They really don't exist. It's not a thing. It's literally not a thing. And it's not. this doesn't disprove that rule. Um, Bass was previously part of J.J. Dillon's stable, so they've split. If Bass wins here, he gets a five-minute bull rope match against Dillon. Unsurprisingly, this is a pretty bad match. Um, Both guys blade. Announcers, again, get very quiet. Bass eventually gets the pin after he uses the cowbell as a weapon, 
which means he earns the right to wrestle J.J. Dillon for five minutes. Now, maybe it's just because I don't really give a shit about J.J. Dillon. But, like, this, it seemed like a lukewarm. Because once you win that stipulation, like, what do you what do you actually do? Like, the only thing that you could imagine is that the babyface would then just pound the manager into a bloody pulp. But that's not a very babyface thing to do. Yeah, so what happens here is Dylan jumps Bass from behind and attacks him. He takes off his shirt, which no one needed to see. God, no. Um, he then, Bass makes a comeback. He hits some shots with the cowbell. The ref gets bumped, which this is no disqualification, so I don't know what this mattered anyway. Black Bart interferes, hits Bass with a pile driver, and then he puts JJ on top of Bass, and Dylan gets the pin. So, you know we were going to be treated to Texas Bull Rope matches all around the loop after this. Goody. Enjoy that, Charlotte. <laughs> this is just bad. JJ Dylan is not good. I can't think of a manager who had more of a run in the business who had less talent as a manager than J.J. Dillon. I, ju- I genuinely can't. It is strange. He's not never, I never thought he was a good promo. No, he's not. He doesn't have charisma. You don't notice him like he's at ringside. He doesn't draw the eye. Like The fact that he was the manager of the Four Horsemen is incredible. Yeah. It, it makes no sense. Everyone in that stable was a better promo than him. Everyone. Next up, we've got an arm wrestling match between the Barbarian and Superstar Billy Graham. It's at this point where I have to bring up that, like, the music on this show was a lot better. I can't tell if it's all dubs from WWE or if they had just started making their own dubs of popular songs at this point. No, I'm pretty sure they're still using the real stuff at this point. Um, this sounded like a dub of the final countdown. It was, Graham came yes. out too. Yeah. So either so I'm guessing Graham countdown. did actually do that. But like you can tell a lot of the songs people are coming out to are real songs cuz these are like some crappy WCW style dubs of those songs that we're hearing. They're still pretty good. Yeah, you can tell what the song is. Yeah, like it, you can it see works. the crowd is reacting to the entrance. Yeah, you've got the song, and like they got lights, and like it's just such a better presentation. Like this puts actual WrestleMania two in the fucking dirt. WrestleMania two looks like shit compared That's to this. That's the thing that amazes me is the uh, production quality of the entrances, where they're dimming the lights and doing yeah. light shows. Like again, they didn't do that in the WWF until the nineties. Like it's nuts that we saw this as like. The tiny, crappy production place. Yeah. Because WrestleMania looks like ass until, like, the Hoosier Dome. Um, so, first they're going to do an arm wrestling match, and then they're going to have a proper wrestling match. The winner of the arm wrestling match wins $10,000. Um, they go back and forth. Graham ends up winning. And then Paul Jones attacks Graham with his cane, which... Gives Barbarian the advantage to start the match. Um, Barbarian starts out in control until he misses a leg drop. Graham hits some right hands, but Barbarian cuts him off with a clothesline. Barbarian goes for the diving headbutt, but he misses. Uh, Graham locks on a bear hug. 
Uh, Barbarian is fading, but Paul Jones comes in with his cane for the disqualification. Naturally. Uh, Graham gets the cane away from him and hits them with it. Barbarian comes in from behind to attack him. Graham and Barbarian fight on the floor. Barbarian hits Graham with a chair. And that is the end of this one. Um, Just sad watching Billy Graham out there at this point. He looks so old. Like, he's super muscular, of course, but, like, he's ancient at this point. Very Hulk Hogan, like, circa 2005. It's just a bummer, man. Um, Next up, we've got a match for the NWA National Heavyweight Championship between Terry Taylor and nature boy Buddy Landell. Um... I will never get over the fact that they let Landell use the Nature Boy gimmick while Flair is on the roster. Imagine that you're so over as a babyface that a heel gets over by pretending to be you. That's crazy to me. (laughs) On the same show. Like, that might work if you're like, oh, well, everybody knows Ric Flair, but here in Alabama, I'm the Nature Boy. Yeah. But no, on the same shows as Flair. Why wouldn't Flair just immediately be whomping this dude's ass? At some point, they were supposed to have a feud. I think it's after this. Uh, Buddy Landell gets fired shortly after this for drugs, and then they bring him back and end up firing him again because of drugs. But at some point, him and Flair were supposed to have a feud, but it never happens. And then... Buddy Landell shows up in the WWF in, like, 1995. Yeah, that was some weird shit. That was just part of, like... Shane Douglas. Something with Shane Douglas. I'm looking it up now, because I got I can't it remember. Was, he has, like, a, he, it's like a 30-second squash against Ahmed Johnson on an In Your House. He wrestles Bret Hart in a title match on Raw. I can believe that. It's probably a pretty good match. Yeah, he just tore his quadriceps and became a jobber after that. But, like, he was getting a push. He had talent. Just, you know, demons. Yeah. Uh, Land- story. Landell is the heel. Taylor's the babyface and the defending champion. Uh, the national championship is the top title in the Georgia promotion, which is formerly Georgia Championship Wrestling, now Championship Wrestling from Georgia. Absolutely. Taylor is in control early as he works the arm. Landell charges Taylor, but eats his boot. It's a big clothesline from Landell to turn the tide. Uh, Landell goes for a suplex, but Taylor counters with a small package. Landell applies a camel clutch. Taylor escapes by running him into the turnbuckle. The ref gets bumped. Dylan gets off his shoe and tries to hit Landell, but... Taylor counters. He throws Landell into Dylan. Taylor goes for a superplex, but Dylan trips him, and Landell comes down on top. Landell gets the pin. As I mentioned, he will be fired in the coming weeks, so I assume that they had to vacate this title, as seemingly all these titles had recently been vacant for similar reasons. I would imagine. This match was nothing special. Like, it... And we can't get out of here without mentioning that Terry Taylor's a piece of shit, because he is. So there we go. Obligatory mention. Yep, fuck Terry Taylor. 
Next up, we've got a match for the NWA National Tag Team Championship as the Andersons defend against Wahoo McDaniel and Billy Jack Haynes. And Wahoo and Billy Jack are the Florida Tag Team Champions, but those belts are not on the line here. Wahoo had a Chris Jericho-like ability to attach himself to the next big thing. We've talked about Billy Jack Haynes before, but it's been a while. Holy shit, does he look like a star here. Of everyone on this entire show from top to bottom, only Magnum is in the same universe as Billy Jack Haynes. In terms of you see him and you're like, oh yeah, that guy's the top guy. Like, obviously. Like, look at him. I remember you saying that promoters like looked at Billy Jack Haynes and like saw a Hulk Hogan level star. Yes. And having only seen him in the WPF, I kind of scoffed at that. But like seeing him here, oh yeah, I can see that. And a lot of them hadn't dealt with him personally because he had only really wrestled in Oregon, which yeah. may as well be like on Siberia. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So when he started coming and like touring the South and stuff, people are like, who is this jacked God? We have to push him to the moon. And only after that did they find out that he's batshit insane. <sighs> um, Wahoo quickly gets cut off and worked over. There's a long segment where the Andersons work on Wahoo's arm. Wahoo starts to fire up. He hits some chops, but he can't make the tag. He finally makes the hot tag, and Billy Jack is in for a minute, but then he tags Wahoo back in. Um, Wahoo hits a big chop on Arn. Oli breaks up the pin. Oli then hits a cheap shot on Wahoo. Arn cradles Wahoo. Oli holds his foot down and the Andersons retain. Would have been interested to see more of Billy Jack here, but I sort of feel like they were kind of avoiding him being in the ring. He's also very limited. Like, he's not not even Hulk Hogan level in terms of what he can provide in the ring. Like, he's more Ultimate Warrior than anything, I would say. Uh, Weaver does a quick interview with Buddy Landell and J.J. Dillon, and then we've got... Our sub-main event of the evening, it's an I Quit match for the U.S. title as Tully Blanchard takes on Magnum T.A. Um, Magnum was the U.S. champion. He dropped it to Blanchard earlier in the fall. He is seeking revenge here. I feel like there's more to this story that I'm not really familiar with because, my God, is this a blood feud here? This is the shit. This is intense. This is a a legendary match. Like, I feel like when I first started watching wrestling, like when, you know, when the discussion would come up on wrestling forums, like what are your favorite matches? Like this was always listed along with like Steamboat versus uh, Savage from WrestleMania three. And it's entire, an entirely different style of match from that. It's, it's hard to overstate how hated Tully Blanchard is. (laughs) As a character. <laughs> Both on and off screen. Yes. One Tully of the legendary heat seekers in wrestling. But it also just translated to the fans so immaculately. Like, most of the the heels are at least respected to some extent. And mostly they can, like, turn it off and on. Like, they, like you'll be a heel for, like, nine months, go around the horn, come back, turn babyface, it's fine. Tully Blanchard never turned to babyface. No. He couldn't. He was an un he was like the Miz of his day, except even the Miz eventually turned babyface. Even Ole Anderson played a babyface at points. Tully Blanchard was like the anti-Ricky Steamboat. 
just yeah. an impossible to like dickhead. And Magnum TA is everyone's hero. Like he is like he's basically a Southern Hulk Hogan. Yeah. That's what he's Big, becoming. Jacked, handsome, charismatic, the women dig him, the guys like him. Whole package. He's got everything. And he can work. This match kicks ass. (laughs) I don't know if I have ever seen a match quite like this. You could not do this match anymore. No. No wrestling, no major wrestling promotion in America would do a match like this today. It's brutal. Like, it, it would be very difficult to try to. Uh, Tully is accompanied by his valet baby doll. They start out with some wrestling. They pick each other's legs and then shit starts getting crazy. Tully rakes Magnum's eyes, slams him into the cage. Magnum Jew says Magnum turns the tide. He runs Tully into the cage. Tully comes up bleeding. Magnum gets the mic, tells Tully to quit. Tully responds by headbutting him in the dick. That was... I laughed out loud. I, I couldn't help it. Brilliant comedic timing. <laughs> Tully just pummels Magnum, screams at him to quit. Like, I quit matches are always interesting to me. I think they're really good when the guys can really work the stick during the match. And this is just some crazy shit. Yeah, like the desperation to get the other person to quit. Like... A lot of times it's just a lot of the I quit matches that you see, especially in WWE, it's almost like a weary like, uh, do you fucking finally quit already or do we have to keep doing this? Like, this sucks. Yeah, this these guys is, are like, yeah, these guys are like, quit, you motherfucker. I will literally kill you if you don't quit. Uh, Tully with an axe handle off the top rope. Magnum fights back. He wins a slug fest. Sets up for a 10-punch, but Tully counters with an atomic drop. Tully tells Baby Doll to throw him a chair. She does. It's a wooden one. I love a good wooden chair in wrestling. They never should have switched to steel. I know why they did. I know why they did. (laughs) Oh, these wooden chairs are ridiculously dangerous, but God, I love watching a guy hit somebody with a wooden chair and seeing it just explode. Just the clatter of it as it hits the guy is so fucking satisfying. Tully breaks a piece of the wood off, makes himself a spike, and tries to stab Magnum with it. This is the sickest shit. A spike! Abdullah the Butcher is in the back going like, wow, that's fucked up. (laughs) Yeah, Abdullah's horrified seeing this. Man, y'all need to settle down. Magnum fights him off. He gets the spike. And he jams it into Tully's head. Yep. (laughs) And Tully finally quits. Now, here's the beauty of this spike. Nobody stabbed anybody with this spike. It wasn't real. They just pretended to. And you believed it because they sold it so well. I couldn't even really tell what it looked like because I was cringing in my seat so bad trying not to look at it. This is much safer than a chair shot. Much. This is... 
safer than a DDT or a pile driver. This is a bajillion times safer than Brock Lesnar shoot elbow in Randy Orton until he bleeds. Like, this is old school wrestling, and it worked. Yeah, this is what wrestling is supposed to be. Yeah. Is you creatively sell the idea of something hugely impressive and dangerous without actually doing it. No, I mean, really, nothing dangerous happened in this match. Like, blood is a little dangerous. Like, obviously, they don't take seriously enough the risk of blood-borne illnesses. They're, you know, should really be testing these guys regularly to make sure they don't have anything. But, you know, cutting yourself with a sanitary blade done correctly is not very dangerous. Like, getting thrown into this chicken wire cage is not dangerous. Pretending to stab each other with a spike is not dangerous. Like... They're working. We also haven't really mentioned the blood on this show. Um, Every single match. After the very first match, I think there's blood in every fucking match for the entire rest of the show. Both rings are just soaked in blood. It's a joke. The ring is yellow by the time Flair and Dusty get out there. Yeah, like, it's way too much. It's like, ridiculous. This match deserved blood. It's a yes. cage match. It's the U.S. title. Okay, I buy that. Like, I mean, you've also, like, man, did Dusty love to book gimmicks. What do we got here? We had the Mexican death match. We got two cage matches. We've got a street fight next. Yeah, Dusty. Texas we had the bull rope. Arm wrestling, bull rope. Yeah, like, Dusty loved him some gimmick matches ironically because vince russo hated wcw and never wanted to watch it those are the two people who have been closest in their booking philosophy throughout the course of their careers yeah the book (sighs) dusty does it well (laughs) some of the time some of the time this tonight was good dusty but yeah i could have done without some of this blood and some of these gimmicks it's so much like, this match would be even more special if it's the only match on the card that gets blood. Or at least the only match in Greensboro. Because Dusty Flair is going to get blood, too. It just is. But, like, it's so hard to seem brutal when there's been blood in every match. Uh, next up, we've got an Atlanta street fight with the Midnight Express against jimmy valiant and miss atlanta lively who is ron garvin in drag this is an interesting thing about the south what is happening in this match because it's it's just like not remarked upon that ron garvin is wearing lady clothes oh he gets hugely over in drag it's the same sort of thing where, like, Big Vito started wearing a dress and got crazy over. Like, yeah. there's a weird subsection of people who are otherwise super discriminatory and bigoted in their everyday life, but also just love to see a man in a dress. And love I don't see a man in a dress beating people up. Yeah. I don't get the crossover, but it, it is there. Yeah, like, it's just, like, unremarked upon. And there's nothing, like, I don't, are we supposed to believe this is actually a woman? Is there, like, a joke that everybody's in on but me? Yeah, they never mention that it's Ron Garvin. Let's be clear. Um, On the scale from 1 to 10 on how hard is this person trying to present themselves in drag, this is, like, a low 2. Like, Ron Garvin's put on a wig and a dress. 
But this is Ron fucking Garvin. His ugly ass face. And the Express uh, Russell in tuxedos. Yeah. Yeah. It's very weird. Why is it always tuxedos with Jimmy Valiant? Uh, Jimmy Valiant is still wildly over and out of control. Nuclear heat on Cornette and the Express. Uh, this is Condry and Eaton. They don't get Stan Lane until 1987. Which one do you prefer? I, I, I'm an Eaton and Lane guy. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, I think that's the best version. But Condry and Eaton are really good, too. And Bobby Eaton's amazing. Bobby Eaton's the fucking man. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the Express throw powder in Valiant's eyes and they pommel him. He's quickly busted open. They double team Miss Atlanta. Cornette nails her in the head with his tennis racket. Uh, Valiant comes back. He's set up for a splash. Eaton comes off the top rope and Miss Atlanta catches him with a right hand and pins him. And then they strip Cornette down to his boxers. I wonder if you were in this a fan of Southern wrestling in those days. I think you saw Jim Cornette's ass more than you saw your own. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, nothing gay about stripping a dude in front of 20,000 people as they cheer. But see, this is what I'm talking about, is that, like, a man in drag strips another man down to his underwear. Nothing gay about that. Cool. Let's let's just... That's fucking good family entertainment. Good stuff. But hey, the second two men want to hold hands... Kill those motherfuckers! There is a definite undercurrent of homoeroticism in Southern wrestling. It's bizarre. Um, Weaver interviews Magnum TA. He says it's over between him and Tully and that he'll be a fighting champion. He'll defend the title against anybody who wants a shot. And then we've got a steel cage match for the NWA World Tag Team Championship because what this show needed was more cage matches and more tag title belts. It's weird that this match seemed like such kind of an afterthought on this show almost. Because, I mean, we're talking about the Rock and Roll Express in the mid-80s. Like, this this could have drawn a house on its own. I mean, the crowd went wild for the finish here. Yes. Um, yeah, it's Ivan and Nikita Koloff against the Rock and Roll Express. This is the Greensboro main event. Uh, Dusty and Flair are wrestling in Atlanta. Uh, Don Cronodal is in the corner of Morton and Gibson. That's a feud reaching back to the previous year where his brother and Ole Anderson uh, fought in defense of him. Gotta love that a feud could just be still going after a year at this point. That's what I really, really like, is that it's not just the feud. It's just the character progression from feud to feud in this promotion makes a lot of sense. Like People just kind of drift into different feuds that correspond with this guy who is feuding with this other guy. And like it, it all feels very natural. Uh, even though it's a cage match, you have to tag in and out. Uh, Nikita obviously overpowers Ricky Morton, but... Morton manages to hit a crossbody. He then puts on a headlock, but he gets crotched on the top rope. He's tagged Gibson. He slams Ivan. He follows up with a knee drop. Uh, Morton and Gibson make quick tags to keep the Koloffs off guard. Gotta gotta love those tag team specialists. <laughs> yeah, you do. Uh, Gibson runs Ivan into the cage twice. Hello, Juice. Ivan tags in Nikita. He runs Gibson into the cage. 
like we said, a lot of blood on this show. Like a crazy amount. I mean, again, in this match, it makes sense. Like, Ricky Morton gets blood, like, waking up in the morning. Like, that's... Engendering sympathy is his whole stock and trade. Yeah. Um, it's actually Gibson taking the heat here for once. That's true. That That's pretty weird. Like, that is... I don't know if they hadn't established the formula yet or if they were shaking it up here, but yeah, you just, I, to me, a rock and roll express match doesn't really start until Ricky Morton's getting his ass kicked, but this was a different version of it. Yeah. I mean, it still works. Like yeah. it's not that Robert couldn't do it. It's just that Ricky's one of the best at it. Whoever lived. Uh, Morton breaks up a pin. Shivani in the one piece of good commentary he did on this show points out that normally you would only have one save, but since this is a no disqualification match, you can save as many times as you want. Which is great, because I totally forgot that was a rule we were supposed to believe existed. Uh, Gibson starts to fight back. He gets run into the cage again. Gibson then drop kicks Ivan into the ref. Um, Nikita hits Gibson with the Russian sickle, but the ref is down and can't make the count. Morton then tags in blind. He rolls up Ivan for the pin, and the crowd explodes explodes for this yes they do like yeah. this is cool so like, it's like it, nearly it, on par with that scott steiner tv title win from that starcade we did oh yeah where like the fans just randomly decide to coronate him as the next big thing with like a gigantic <laughs> pop out of nowhere yeah this is cool as shit like i it's really fun to see the rock and roll express when they were still somewhat in their prime it's still funny to me that these two fuck ugly dudes could be like the international se- heartthrobs of the South. But it it's was just, a different world back then. You could I be know. ugly and still be sexy. I get it. I mean, this is just really awesome though. Like the Rock and Roll Express kick ass. Like that. I, you don't need me to tell you that. But they just are so much fun to watch. And Nikita Koloff's a badass too. I really enjoy watching him. Uh, post-match beating as the Russians use their chains. Crusher Khrushchev shows up and he beats up Kronodal on the floor so the Russians uh, get their heat back and you know give us a reason to keep this going on the house shows after this. Makes sense. All right, it's main event time uh, for the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. We've got Ric Flair defending against the American Dream Dusty Rhodes. Dusty is out first. Pretty cool entrance for him. Uh, Flair is out second in a beautiful white robe. He's got a lot of heat here. Um, probably smart that they did this in Atlanta. I would have thought Flair still would have gotten a lot of cheers in Greensboro, but Dusty is really over in Atlanta. Oh, yeah. And it's re- returned to the scene of the crime where Flair betrayed him. The heat Flair gets, it's not quite as hot as you might expect, because I think even though it did happen, like there were still some people who wanted to support Flair. But as the match goes on, like it, they managed to get it to be like 100% dusty, which is a testament to them. Um, dusty scores with a big right hand to kind of draw first blood. Metaphorically, not literally, I should point out. Uh, Flair bails out of the ring and actually jumps the railing and like takes a walk in the crowd. Yeah, he does. It's I love that so much. Yeah, like one punch and he's like out of the ring over the railing, like almost walking out of the arena. 
that's how you make a spectacle out of something small. Uh, Flair gets back in the ring. He cuts Dusty's knee out from under him. Dusty sells it like he's been shot. Um, Dusty comes back with a suplex. He goes to work on Flair's leg for revenge. Flair catches Dusty in a sleeper. Dusty escapes by running Flair into the corner. Flair then goes to the top. Dusty throws him off. Dusty goes for the figure four, but Flair manages to kick Dusty's knee out from under him, and Dusty is hurt bad. Um, Dusty sends Flair into the corner. Flair does the Flair flip all the way out onto the floor. That is low-key a pretty big bump, uh, especially back when they don't have mats on the floor. It's a gigantic bump. Like, it's... It's become so, like, commonplace now, and it became almost like a joke because Ric Flair would do it literally every single match. Like, when you take the full bump, which I had only ever really seen Shawn Michaels do other than Flair, it's a hell of a bump. You don't know where the hell you're going with that thing. Yeah, this is a guy who broke his back in a plane crash. That's what's nuts. Everything you see Ric Flair do once he becomes a national name happens after he broke his back in a plane crash. Outrageous. Uh, Dusty follows him out to the floor. He slams his head into the ring post. There's blood. Uh, Dusty goes up to the top and like sort of just falls down on Flair. This appeared to be some kind of miscommunication. I mean, when you're a big fat fuck, that can be an effective maneuver. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Flair flip. Flair does the deal where he runs across the apron, goes up to the top. He comes off the top, but Dusty hits him with a gut shot. Uh, Flair kicks Dusty's leg out from from under him again, and he locks on the figure four. Dusty fights and manages to turn it over. They exchange blows. Dusty gets the better of it. Dusty scores with a clothesline. Both men are down. Uh, Dusty covers. Flair kicks out. He propels Dusty into the referee. And Tommy Young is out cold. Um, Dusty now locks on the figure four. Arn runs in. He hits Dusty. Flair covers. Second referee comes in. He counts. One, two. Dusty gets the shoulder up. Crowd loses it. Oh, they thought that was the finish. Oh, yeah. Would have made all the sense in the world for Dusty to get fucked over here. But Flair goes to pull Dusty up. Dusty rolls Flair into a small package, gets the pin. Dusty Rhodes is the new NWA champion. And all is right in the world. Like, it's almost like relief from the crowd because, like, they are so outrageously happy. It's beautiful to watch. I love they have ton of baby faces run out to celebrate with Dusty. I always love this. Yeah, I don't know who like any of these jabronis are. <laughs> like they send out the B squad. All Dusty's friends and Flair's helped to the back by Arn and Ole. And Flair's got that thing going where he's bled so much that his entire hair is dyed red in the yeah. way only he could do. Of course, we know the belt is going to be returned to Dusty. Um, I think on that, it was either that Saturday or the Saturday afterwards. Um, belt will be returned to Flair because Dusty was disqualified. I don't really know what Dusty was disqualified for. I guess they said he hit Tommy Young. 
Yeah, maybe. I, I thought it was. I thought it was that Flair was disqualified because Arn interfered, but. Yeah. But I, Tommy Young wouldn't have seen that because he was knocked out, and yeah. refs don't have instant replay. So I, I don't know, actually. Yeah, I think it had to be like they disqualified Dusty because he got like knocked into Tommy Young. But, I mean, lame, but it worked. I mean, it they drew it. It got a ton of heat. Flair gets the belt back. I mean, obviously, they could have just had Flair win the belt back in two weeks because the four horsemen helped him, but... This was even more heat that he just got the belt handed back to him and Dusty had to keep chasing him. And that just like injustice was the whole thing that Dusty was building this program around. It's like, yeah. I got to work 10 times harder to get where you get. Yeah, because he's the working man. Yeah. So like it, it made total sense. And there's something to be said for this little like light in the darkness type thing. Yeah. Like just because it was short and like fleeting does not mean that it did not mean everything to the fans in attendance that night. Who will always remember that they watched Dusty Rhodes beat Ric Flair for the title in a cathartic moment. That's the thing is, yeah, anybody who was there, are any of them going to be like, oh, but yeah, Dusty had to give the belt back. No, you don't remember that part. That part's not important. It's like when Luger beat hogan for the title on yeah. that episode of nitro like yeah he dropped it back immediately it's a moment. but yeah. it's a moment like it's you take the edge off the heat a little bit and then you build it back up afterwards but you can't just be all heat all the time you got to have happy endings sometimes no knowing when to hit the release valve is really important as a booker like you can't book so much heat the fans lose faith yeah like that was Kevin Sullivan's job with the NWO was sort of the masterclass of that because he played it right up to the line so much. Yeah. Where like WCW almost looked completely pathetic and hopeless, but every once in a while, yeah. you could believe. Until finally Sting came and even the odds. Uh, we go back to Dusty's locker room where he's enjoying a champagne celebration with all his friends. Dusty dedicates his win to the auto workers, the textile workers, and all the other blue-collar people across this country. That's nice of him. And that's it. They roll the highlight tape, and we are off the air. That is Starcade 85. Um, I would say a big improvement on the previous year. Um, was this as good as the first one? The first one's still better, I think. It still had the the benefit of being new. And, yeah. like, everything about it felt new. And I feel like they had a lot bigger stars on it, too. Like, despite the fact that this has Magnum TA and the Rock and Roll Express and all sorts of stuff like that, it still felt like 83 was, like, a bigger deal. But this is great. Like, this should have been the template for every Starcade to come after this. The production was awesome. They had hella big stars everywhere. Like, everything was good. You tone down on the blood, and you have a show that you can replicate forever. Yeah, I think 86 would have been a worthy follow-up if not for Magnum's car accident, meaning they had to make up a new main event on the fly. 86 is the Night of the Skywalkers, so you've got um, the Midnight Express against the Road Warriors and the Scaffold match, and then um, Flair and Nikita is the main event. I believe that was in Atlanta. Um, they go to a double DQ. Yeah, that's the problem. Yeah. Is you just you don't yet they don't have a finish there because they're not going to put the belt. I, I don't know why. I you know weird to say. I don't know why they didn't just put the belt on Nikita at that point. Like the thing was Nikita turned face. You know, 
because he you know showed respect for his fallen friend Magnum TA. It's kind of weird to have the Russian be your top baby face, but it worked. Um, That's how much sympathy Magnum had. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody had to be Magnum's friend who was going to step up for him. But just imagine this match if it has this show if it has Ric Flair versus Magnum on it. Magnum beats him for the belt. On the same show as you get Rock and Roll versus the Minnesota Wrecking Crew, the Road Warrior versus Midnight Express, and a goddamn Skywalker. First of all, Night of the Skywalkers is the greatest tagline for any wrestling event that's ever happened. I will say, I love the subtitles on these shows. This one was kind of clunky. I don't know what the, the gathering doesn't mean much of anything to me. I mean, I kept expecting Juggalos to show up, and I was really dreading it. Yeah, could have just been hard times. But yeah, going forward, like 83, a flair for the gold. It's misspelled, but it's still good. The Million Dollar Challenge, The Gathering, The The Night of of the Skywalkers. What is 87? Is 87 like Chicago Heat or something like that? Chi-Town Heat. Chi-Town Heat. Yeah. And then after that, it's True Grit. (laughs) Uh, 89 was Future Shock. 90s collision course. And that's where we're going next week. We're on a collision course with a pretty awful wrestling show. Um, So we are, this is a wrap for our November Starcade anthology. We'll pick it back up uh, next year. Believe it or not, there's only two Thanksgiving Starcades left. After 87, they moved it to Christmas. Oh boy. So, If you'll remember all the way back to one year ago, we started a Christmas Starcade anthology. So we did 88 and 89 last year. So we'll pick up uh, next time with Starcade 90 um, collision course. And uh, the collision course there is a main event between Sting and the Black Scorpion. I am very excited to talk about the Black Scorpion again. We covered that on one of our early episodes when we did uh, the Halloween Havoc from that year. I'm excited to talk about it again. Yeah, we haven't talked about it in roughly four years, it feels like. So God, I think there's plenty of meat on that book. a long time. <laughs> we really, really have. Um, but there's so much on this show. A tag team tournament where they've literally collected just weirdos from all across the planet Earth. Yeah, a tag tournament with... Conan and Rey Mysterio representing Mexico. Yeah, not that Rey Mysterio. He's like 12 at this point. Um, uh, we've got Muda and Masa Saito for Team Japan. We've got two badass Russian shooters representing the Soviet Union. Uh, what Jack Victory and Rip Morgan are Team New Zealand. Uh, Norman Smiley and Chris Adams representing Britain. Two jabronis I've never heard of representing Canada. It's a very bizarre tournament. But a bizarre in the most awesome imaginable way. Yeah. Um, and then what, Doom against Barry Windham and Arn Anderson in a street fight? Shit, yeah. Yeah. And then, Lex Luger versus Stan Hansen in a Texas Lariat match? I think that's a bull rope match, even though it's called Probably. a lariat match. Um, that's the only yeah. way to get me to watch a Texas bull rope match is to lie about the name. Always love seeing Stan Hansen pop up in WCW. And the Z-Man, another and, Z-Man sighting. Yeah, 
Uh, Z-Man against Bobby Eaton. Hell yeah. That's that's actually an awesome match. Fuck yeah. And yeah, the question will be answered, who is the Black Scorpion? The question will not be answered, what the hell were they thinking with that storyline? Because yeah. nobody can quite figure that out. We'll try to answer the question of who should have been the Black Scorpion, even though the real answer is no one. No, no, there's not a lot of good answers there. So yeah, Starcade 90, all that and more next time on the Lawcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next time.